0: Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and since March 16th, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is part five of Restoring Memory, marked by COVID, faces of COVID. Early in the pandemic, I think because of the nature of the work I do, I was thinking already about COVID memorials. And I draw my inspiration for this in many ways from the work of Robert Lifton, who's been a guest on COVID Calls. And he's the author of so many books that are valuable to those of us who think about disaster victims and disaster recovery. One that I refer to often is Death in Life, which is the first um, extensive English language book that did interviews with Hiroshima survivors and tried to make sense of what they were processing, those who'd made it through, uh, and then had to bear the experience of being survivors of that disaster from 1945. Thinking about disaster memorials also with the many super impressive and inspiring activists that I've met here in South Korea who are involved with the process of justice around the Sewol Ferry disaster, the family members of those who died on September 11, the first responders and people who just went to work that day, and the many other communities that have been so generous to me over the years as a researcher and invited me in and explained their pain, explained the source of their activism and turned that activism into living, breathing projects that can instruct people and change the world. And some of those take the shape of disaster memorials. And so I was already thinking about that early on when the pandemic hit the United States. One thing that's important to note is that memorials are not inert. We often think of memorials in, as Washington DC in a set of um, granite tablets. Um, and that's true, that's a form of memorial. It can be a very powerful form of memorial on, on certain memorial days, but memorials are also a process. In American and global life, they are a form of politics. They are a way to demand justice. And people said it was a little too early to talk about memorials. A few people told me that uh, in April of 2020, but I didn't think so. And I reached out to a really great historian, Jay Aronson. And in fact, we wrote a piece for the Washington Post uh, that was published April 28, 2020. And I wanted to share that with you as we're returning to the two years of this pandemic, and I think it helps set the stage a little bit for the conversation I'm going to have with my two guests. The headline is, What Will the COVID-19 Memorial Look Like? It appeared in the Washington Post April 28, 2020. COVID-19 has reshaped millions of lives around the globe and, like tragedies before it, from terrorist attacks to genocide, wars to climate and weather disasters, we need to collectively remember and memorialize the loss of life we are now enduring. In fact, it is an essential part of the democratic process. President Trump, whose administration downplayed potentially life-saving early warnings about the virus, wants us to forget everything but the names of the victims as quickly as possible. And not dwelling on why people died, he hopes we will be able to get back to normal and watch our economy, I'm quoting Trump here, boom, perhaps like never before, unquote. Rather than forgetting what happened, however, it is vital to remember not just the victims of COVID-19 in the United States and around the world, but also the circumstances of their deaths. Journalists, social scientists, and public health researchers are already taking the first steps to document this pandemic in real time. But the work of interpretation and meaning-making will continue for years, if not decades, to come. Memorials to COVID-19 victims should be part of this process. If done properly, these memorials will honor victims, teach us about why they died, and whether their deaths could have been prevented, but perhaps most importantly, impart what we learned during this pandemic. Memorials are typically thought of as sites of contemplation and healing that are created after a catastrophic event. They're seen as endpoints in places of closure. They are this, but they also are more. They serve as a forum for ongoing debate over the causes, long-term effects, and meanings of a disaster. At their best, they also allow communities to engage in the long-term process of mending social ruptures, attending to survivors and families of victims, and coming to terms with social failures. Memorials, like funerals and other death-related rituals, are more about the needs of the living than the dead. Foreclosing memorialization contributes to historical amnesia, an insidious forgetfulness that delays a reckoning with injustice. Consider racism in America. Only in the past few years at sites like the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which opened in Birmingham, Alabama in 2018, and the Whitney Plantation near New Orleans, which opened in 2014, have victims of American slavery and Jim Crow era violence begun to receive their long deferred memorials. Deciding what memorials look like and whose names to include can prove difficult. Sometimes this is due to the nature of the event, the tragedy itself. Tens of thousands of victims of the U.S. atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were either incinerated in the bombing or cremated before being identified. The storage of unidentified body fragments in the medical examiner's facility behind a wall of the underground September 11 museum still provokes anger from many families despite the names being listed on the memorial above ground. In many cases, including the Oklahoma City bombing and the September 11 memorial in New York City, determining whom to include and in what order to list the names provoked heated arguments. Memorial designs, too, provoke controversy that can reveal the uglier side of politics. Paul and Melina Murdoch's original Crescent of Embrace design for the Flight 93 memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, elicited criticism, for example, from a vocal minority who saw in it a symbol of Islam? These critics were wrong, but their voices revealed how anti Muslim attitudes surfaced during the memorialization debate. Memorials also tell the story of the events that led to deaths, and this too can provoke controversy. A narrative can tell us whether the victims sacrificed their lives, were sacrificed by an uncaring, negligent government, or possibly both. The need to tell stories often leads to intense debates about the politicization of public deaths, that is, deaths that take on meanings and grief beyond just the deceased's immediate circle of family and friends. Increased contentiousness about how to remember such deaths has led to the emergence of the Memorial Museum in the post-Cold War era. These institutions seek not only to commemorate victims of disaster and atrocity to promote healing, but also to educate future generations so they can avoid a similar fate. Despite efforts to avoid politics, The complex social and political contexts in which memorial museums are planned and constructed invite controversy. Indeed, when the memorial to the victims of the 9 11 World Trade Center attacks became too closely linked to the museum being planned at the site, many family members complained their loved ones were being politicized or used to attract tourists to pay for entry to this privately run museum. In the debate about the 9 11 memorial and museum, designers had to decide how to portray the victims. Were the people who died in the Twin Towers heroes of a war, innocent victims of senseless terrorist violence, or collateral damage from a response to decades of militant, oil-soaked American foreign policy in the Middle East? Some argued in those bellicose years that, yes, they died in the first battle of a war on terror, a way of framing the event as part of a longer war. But over time, this logic has worn thin, and more and more we see them as people who went to work and didn't come home. They weren't warriors, and yet their names are still engraved next to the firefighters and the police who also died that day. New disaster research challenges the idea that a disaster is a single event with a clear ending point. We now see disasters as slow, unreeling over decades and generations. For example, historian Edward Linenthal's concept of the unfinished 1995 Oklahoma City bombing suggests memorialization is part of a long-term disaster recovery process. Disaster researchers now view PTSD, lingering health effects, and victim collective and victim long-term compensation as factors we must attend to in order to collectively heal. Memorials at their best can be sites for ongoing research oral histories, gathering visitor responses, the donation of artifacts, archiving legal proceedings and the maintenance of health registries. Memorialization efforts will have to grapple with big questions like government inaction during the early stages of the disease for COVID-19 and how to include sacrifices made by ordinary people, healthcare workers, grocery store clerks, and those who stayed home to flatten the curve. They will also have to explain what makes the victims of COVID-19 more worthy of memorialization than the people who have died during this period by other unrelated causes. One clue might lie in the unique nature of death in the time of COVID-19 in which large numbers of victims died in the isolation of their homes or in ICUs without loved ones present, and the families in turn were not able to gather together to mourn their loss. Because the COVID-19 pandemic is not going to end soon, and this was published in April of 2020, and because its ending point is uncertain, we need to start a memorialization process now. We can't wait for August juries to award architectural prizes or for some ephemeral final count of the dead or even a count of the survivors. In this sense, we might look to the Stolperstein in Berlin, the AIDS quilt, or the oral history project of the Flight 93 memorial as examples to work with, inclusive, living, open-ended activists, consoling the living and marking the dead while also providing spaces for debate over pasts that didn't have to be that way and futures that remain possible. I wanted to talk about memorials with people who think deeply about them and work with them every single day. And so I invited some friends of COVID Calls, Alex Goldstein and Kristen Urquiza, to come back on. Let me briefly introduce them to you. I think they probably need no introduction. Alex Goldstein created Faces of COVID. He is currently CEO of the strategic communications firm 90 West, which he founded in 2016 to better serve companies, organizations, and leaders that are making a positive impact on the world with a focus on equity, economic mobility, and the climate crisis. And Kristen Arkeza is the co-founder and chief activist of Marked by COVID. Kristen's a graduate of Yale University and UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy, where she has a master of public affairs. And she has also been a guest host on COVID calls. Alex and Kristen, um, it's great to see you both today. Great,
1: great to, to be with here you. with you both.
0: Likewise. So. Um, I didn't read an obituary at the top of this episode. I was hoping, Kristen, you might be willing to share the obituary of your father. I think it's the right place for us to start this conversation.
1: It would be an honor to bring my dad into this. Mark-Anthony Urquiza. Mark-Anthony Urquiza passed away on June 30th, 2020, after more than three weeks battling COVID-19. Mark was a high school 14 meter, 400 meter dash state champion and cross country runner. Mark was known for his infectious energy, strong will, and yes, stubbornness. He met his wife Brenda at Tolleson Union High School. They welcomed their only child, Kristen, in 1981. The family loved their annual summer vacations to California, where Kristen now lives. Mark, who was often called Blackjack, by his friends and family, was a lover of nature, the night sky, and politics, and was the life of the party. Along with Brenda and Kristen, he is loved and missed by siblings Frank, Benny, Richard, Diana, Gina, siblings-in-law, Carol, Chris, Yvonne, and Ray, his nieces and nephews, the broader community of Tolleson, Arizona, and countless friends. He is preceded in death by his parents, Venancio and Ruth, and his brother, George. Mark, like so many others, should not have died from COVID-19. His death is due to the carelessness of the politicians who continue to jeopardize the health of brown bodies through a clear lack of leadership, refusal to acknowledge the severity of this crisis, an inability and unwillingness to give clear and decisive direction on how to minimize risk. Mark's daughter, Kristen, and her partner, Christine, are channeling our sadness and rage into building an awareness campaign, so fewer families are forced to endure this. We honor Mark's life by continuing this fight for others, even in these darkest moments. Kristen will be starting an ofrenda, an altar uh, with pictures of those lost to COVID-19, outside the Arizona State Capitol on Wednesday evening at 4.30. All are welcome to bring pictures of their loved ones who are suffering from COVID-19 or who have passed. For more information, follow at COVID on Facebook.
0: Kristen Urquiza reading the obituary of her father, Mark Anthony Urquiza on COVID calls. Uh, thank you, Kristen. Thank you for sharing that, and uh, thanks for founding Mark by COVID.
1: It was not a question of if it was a need. My dad, I mean, as I just said, my my dad, and so many others, so many of these deaths were preventable, and um, it was a calling to ensure that he and everyone else who have suffered through this are not forgotten that that memory hole you just referenced um, is not where we shove this disaster. It's the least that we owe to him and everyone else, ourselves.
0: Alex, I'd like to bring you in. You're the founder of Faces of COVID, and the work has been doing things like amplifying an obituary like what Christian just read. Tell us a bit about your project and and how it got started.
2: When uh well Kristen was reading that obituary I actually <clears throat> quickly let, went and looked up that I actually before I met Kristen and Kristen and I have met in a couple different capacities over the last couple of years I actually shared her father's obituary because I saw the I actually found I think I found the obituary of the story itself and was so moved by the fact that there are people like Kristen who can take I mean I lost my father in in July to prostate cancer and the idea of being able to channel the grief that comes with losing like the most important person in your life. And then being able to channel that into activism and to have the energy and the fortitude to continue to do that and to hold people accountable day in, day out is like really genuinely an inspiration. And I hope Kristen, you know, how many people, uh, have followed your work over these last couple of years and really look to you as a beacon for, uh, you know, the very little bit of accountability that we seem to be capable of um, because I really fear that were it not for folks like you, there would be almost none. Uh, it, it feels as though, I mean, I look around uh, right now and I am sort of bewildered by the extent to which and the pace at which we've tried to turn Uh, the page so incredibly fast on this pandemic, which is, by the way, still here and still killing people. And uh, the consequences of bad decision-making and uh, lack of any kind of coherent strategy are still having real-world repercussions every single day. Um, Were it not for folks like Kristen, I really feel like there would be no, as I said, no accountability at all. You know, Faces of COVID is... um, I started it essentially for my own catharsis because I felt as though we were doing a disservice to the story of the pandemic, even in the most early days, by fixating on numbers, uh, which there are, certainly have a place in this conversation. And they're critical in helping us understand uh, scope and scale. But you can talk to people all day about the number of ventilators that we need and how to flatten the curve. And The new cases and hospitalizations and deaths. But if we can't bring this to street level and allow people to see themselves in those that we are losing, um, to not give people a space to affirm the dignity of those that we are losing, to just literally say out loud that when someone I don't know loses their mom or their dad or their brother or their sister or their child, that that hurts all of us because that's literally what it means to be a part of a society. And uh, I, I, that troubled me so much uh, in the beginning that I started faces of COVID because I felt like I needed it. I felt like I couldn't process what was happening and it turns out, you know, Quite a few folks um, also were looking for that. And it's it, Faces of COVID has been, it's become this kind of morning ritual from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. before I start my day job each day. And it is a space where I feel grounded in the reality of what's happening out there and not the fairy tale that a lot of uh, folks are projecting. And um, that's why. I certainly never imagined that I would be here two years, almost to the date later. And having done this, the only days I took off were the three or four days after my father died in July. And I just could have never imagined that we would still be here and that each morning I would wake up and I'd find three, four, five new submissions overnight from families who had lost somebody the week before. Um it is sometimes I feel like I'm living in an alternate universe. And Kristen, I imagine you've experienced this so many times where you you see what's happening in your own life. And in my context, I see it through the experiences of others that are being sent my way. And then I walk out into the world and it's like everyone is on a different planet. And uh, reconciling those two makes you feel incredibly unmoored. Uh, And I imagine it's also extremely upsetting for folks who have lost people to COVID, who have to endure this every day and see this incredible dissonance between their reality and the sort of shrug that you get out there uh, in the world. And so um, I think all those are reasons why I'm still very much motivated even two years in to really keep the effort going.
1: Well, I'm glad you're still doing it um, because there are a few (laughs) – there are a few folks that have really committed themselves to, you know, trying to share the stories um, and um, really keep this centered on what is uh, just the most important piece of this is the immense loss of life. Um, And, you know, to your point of living in alternative universes, it, It has been um, such a challenging two years, not only because of my own loss and the processing of that and the grief with the anger of why my dad died in the first place, but we do serve as these like harbors to other people's stories and experiences and that disconnect between what's happening outside of their own walls and seeing that so many people are actually not okay. Like, we're really not okay. And we seem to be more preoccupied with some idea of normalcy versus really actually helping people process this trauma, process this grief. And also seeing the fundamental opportunity to see past differences and really connect with people on an empathetic level on our own grief and I was just having a conversation you know earlier today with um, with a, a professor of mine from GS from Berkeley who I had reconnected with and was sharing with him how the one of the gifts of the last two years was part of the community of people that I've connected with who in a different situation would have never given myself the opportunity to get to know and through this memorialization work have made such strong connections, with folks across the spectrum of difference in a way that is so healing and cathartic to this like political moment that we're Mm -hmm. in and this like rush to kind of like push past that feels not only like an affront to our loved ones whose memories deserve to be sort of codified in the historical record, but to the opportunity to really heal and, find that sort of coming togetherness that 9-11 offered us and other disasters, which I'm sure Scott can tell us more about, um, have offered us that this one hasn't so far.
0: Quick reminder: You're listening to COVID calls, and this is part of the Restoring Memory Project of COVID calls. And I'm talking to Kristen Urquiza today and Alex Goldstein. Um, I want to just pick up where you what you were both talking about. Um, so, hours a day, at least, telling stories, um, empathizing, you both making connections, working with victim family members. Um, Kristen directly and Alex you have an open you know email box and, and family members are contacting you and I think that's how you do your project now is because people send things to you I mean I just want to pause there for a second so that's a that's a lot of emotional effort and I think about you both in that in that regard and at the same time I feel like as you both use the word catharsis it's like this is what everybody should have been doing and I can't help, I, want, I don't want to give up on this idea of uh, you, it's, it's, it's unfortunate to describe it as an alternative reality. Or maybe you say it's the reality of an um, unfortunately, it's a reality of the minority in the United States that if we had a much larger number of people doing this work, we would be in a different place in so many different ways about acting on what the pandemic showed with public health, what structural racism, inequality, the inequality for essential workers that we would have just taken much more seriously, all of those things. And, and that maybe we would, we would have gotten to a point of some healing, but healing and forgetting are not the same. And I'm really worried about that.
2: Me too. I I think you put that really well. I, I don't want to speak for Kristen, but for me, I, I feel like a lot of times what I'm doing is projecting the level of empathy that I wish we had in our society, right? Like, I, the exactly what you said about like, it's, it feels so unusual. And one of the things that really I struggle with with faces of COVID is that I get, you know, people say a lot of really nice things about the fact that I've been doing this for two years, which I surely appreciate. But I get, I, I was just speaking to a reporter this morning about this. I get like viscerally angry at the fact that it takes some guy sitting in his, you know, uh, office at six in the morning who didn't, you know, just like a volunteer from six to nine a.m. each morning doing this and collating 7,000 stories, which is how many stories we've done of faces of COVID. And like that this should be much more universal as you put it and that their government and that you know public health agencies and um frankly you know our elected officials and community leaders should be upholding like should be participating in this uh you know there were a couple governors um that seemed to get it a little bit uh you know I, governor bashir in kentucky um governor the uh in new jersey who made a part of their daily press conferences at the front end of the you know pandemic was they would oftentimes tell a couple stories which i thought was like okay you're getting it like this is this is we're getting at the right stuff here but boy has that all just like evaporated and the you know i i have to remind people faces of covid has featured 7000 stories i have a database of those 7000 names the that is what we're at we're approaching a million. So we are well under 1% of all of the names, and we know that that's also a major undercount. And so I think one of the challenges around closure uh, is we have so much work to do to even discover what just happened to us, right? Like we haven't even given any space. For families that have, many of whom have had to endure this in isolation, to even grieve and like express that grief in some kind of communal way. 9 11 is oftentimes brought up, but 9 11, you could watch a funeral a day on CNN of a firefighter if you needed and wanted to engage with that, and people did, right? That does not exist now. And the communal ways that we typically mourn are been mostly taken away from us. And so, I really worry what the consequences are of compounding grief with no outlet to do it as a community and to have like the same shared collective history and experience. Because I, what I've, the word I've been using a lot lately is you know what? If you've gotten out of this pandemic unscathed, you got lucky. Okay. We, I appreciate we all tried to do everything. We got vaccinated and we wore our masks and everything like that. But still, because we were so horribly failed by our leaders at the almost every level of government, you got lucky. And you have to start to reckon with the fact that there are millions of people out there who did not have your experience. And you need to spend some time interfacing with that, or we will have. Catastrophic consequences the next time this happens, and it will happen again.
1: I think the thing that really also sticks out to me, too, Alex, is how you referred to that time between six to nine as a ritual. Mm-hmm. And the word of ritual is something that I talk about every single day, and how this we all know that the pandemic took away the natural cultural rituals that we practice around grief and mourning. And here, Alex is. You know, as a human connecting with these losses, saying I need to spend three hours a day of ritual to just try to put myself in order to cope with what's happening in my in my broader community. And if you extract that out to all of us, it's like the amount of loss that we have experienced both individually, people like me, but then as a a culture, as a society, as, as communities, it's, it's not, it's, it's something at least I've, I've never experienced throughout my lifetime. And I worry about, you know, not only the next pandemic, I worry about my mental health. (laughs) I worry about, you know, what about us as a society in five or 10 years? How is this pent up disappointment in our government? How is this failure of our government going to manifest in other very destructive ways in five or 10 years? Because we were told that this wasn't a big deal. And that's basically from day one, we were told, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. Let's get back to work. Let's get back into the office. And like, I'm sorry, my dad died. And also five other members of my extended family died for no good reason in the course of 2 years at the end of the day i am not okay and you know what i'm a very high functioning not okay right now and that's because i've been able to have like i've you know done what i've needed to do to share my story and help others share my story but i'm not going to allow you to say that i'm okay cuz i'm not okay and many of the people i talk to on a daily basis are not okay
2: Mm -hmm.
1: most of us are not okay.
2: I I get the feeling uh, oftentimes that like as a society, we just don't even know how to approach grief. Like we get so uncomfortable with it that we run from it when it's others are presenting with it. Right. I, uh, I I felt this, you know, my father didn't die from COVID As, as, I mentioned, he died from prostate cancer, but the, I just sort of was observing the struggle that people seemed like they, I've got so many people that are like, well, you know, life goes on and, you know, sorry to hear that, but like tomorrow's a new day, like buck up. And, and where I'm looking around and being like, my entire world is like sort of indefinitely on hold and shattered. And the, I, I think that, um, part of what, I want to do with Faces of COVID and I continue to try to do with Faces of COVID is to give people permission mm-hmm. to get sad and to let it out. Everyone has experienced some level of trauma during these couple of years. And it, the it is okay for us to mourn this together. And I think that's probably one of the things that if people, you know, ask me like, what makes you like most optimistic about phases of COVID, because a lot of it is obviously not optimistic, is that it is almost across the board, perfect strangers writing reactions to losses of people they will have never met, and whose loved ones they'll never meet. That's the kind of, that's what I find as the most additive part from a societal perspective, is it gives people, and maybe people need the sort of semi-anonymity of social media and Twitter to be able to do it because it is so like not something we're good at, I feel like in this country, mean some communities may be better than others, but it is, you know, that I try to be really intentional about creating the space for you to tell the, and that's why I try really hard to amplify the voices of families who will quote tweet their family story and, you know, and the people who submitted because I want to create space for those people to see that, okay, You might've been robbed of every grieving ritual that you really deserved to have for your loved one. But here's a hundred people who you all over fanned out all over the country who are standing with you in your, you know, your grief. And I I feel like we, there's like, we can't do enough to create space and oxygen for people to do that.
0: I just want to pause there for a moment because, um, and, and to say, Alex, uh, um, I hope you're doing okay. And I'm sorry about your dad.
2: Thanks, Scott. Appreciate
0: that. And you shared that, um, you know, honestly and publicly um, what you were going through with that. And and um, I've had Ashton Verdery on. I don't know if you caught those calls. I've had him on a couple of times and with researchers that have worked with him. He's a sociologist at Penn State. He published they published some of his early work around bereavement, COVID. Mm. And this idea of a multiplier, um, which they measure with a lot of different factors. Um, but intuitively, it makes a lot of sense, which is that for every person that dies, it has a ripple effect, and it'll be different for different families based, but their, their number they came up with was nine. And so that's nine people who are directly like materially affected, like it affects how they, how they live and Mm -hmm. if they can live, are they going to lose their homes? Um, and so that's, and so we have the undercount problem. I'm not a fan of the numbers with, with COVID, but I mean, that alone, we would say we have 9 million people in the United States. And then you add on the numbers of children who've lost one or both parents. And then we get, so, so we have an enormous community that's grappling simultaneously with loss at a scale of which we've actually even including any war in American history, it's bigger. And the other thing I wanted to just point out and what you're both saying, I hadn't quite thought of it until this call, but, um, but like one of my grandfathers died during the pandemic and, um, I talked to my brothers and sisters on COVID calls last week and and one of my sisters read the obituary and it was a zoom funeral early in the pandemic. He didn't die of COVID, um, but it was disrupted. We, we couldn't, the grieving was, I mean, I think they got there, but it was, it's part of this story too, somehow. Yeah, so I, the, just, yeah.
1: The incompleteness. I mean, It's very common for me to run across people, and myself included, who feel as if their loved one just disappeared. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they didn't get to be with them. And I'll take my own story. I'm an only child. It was incredibly close to both my mother and my father. And, you know, I wasn't there with him in the 19 days that he was sick. I wasn't there with him when he passed. I wasn't able to talk to him. I you know, when we did go back home, when I went back to Arizona, you know, there was rules and plus it wasn't safe really to gather about the size of funerals. So it's like we had 10 people um, basically there. And my dad was the most popular person I've ever met in my life. In non-pandemic times, my dad would have probably pulled several hundred people to his funeral. So it's actually never felt complete in this really, uh, disruptive way to my own grieving process. And, um, you know, we have those rituals for a reason. And, um, I have learned personally, uh, through my own experience and have seen it through so many people in the community that without those benchmarks, um, whether it's for me, like a Catholic mass because my family's Catholic or like a Shiva around you know, Jewish traditions, et cetera. There's, there is an incompleteness that that doesn't quite help the grieving process. And then back to what you were saying, Alex, about giving permission. This is something we talk a lot about and something that I've been thinking a lot about in my own sort of sharing my story early on. Part of what made it powerful was that By being honest, I helped give permission to other people to share how upset they were that their loved ones had passed due to political failure and the mishandling of this pandemic and this being able to be together in person around whatever rituals of goodbye gives not only permission to grieve, it gives permission to witness all of the ways in which you are unsatisfied with that passing. Mm-hmm. And that's been completely ripped out of the lives of, you know, the nine people per loved one, let alone people like my dad, who, you know, I still have people today who are friends of his. I mean, he never met a stranger. If folks even to this day who reach out and say, I, you know, I, you don't know me I was a friend of your dad. He was so proud of you love what you're doing. And like, I miss him. And I'm like, I have no idea who you are, but you know, thank you for reaching out. But that was, you know, my dad.
2: Our dads would have, I I like to believe Kristen, that our dads are having a really, they're probably watching this right now.
1: I would love, I
2: love that. It is. is, I mean, the way you describe your dad is exactly the way I describe my dad and the, you know, I, I can't even, I mean, it, It makes me extremely emotional to even think about what the last week of his life would have been like had I not been able to be there in hospice with him. And so what you describe, I I can't even comprehend that experience and that that's been multiplied, you know, God knows how many times. but yeah, we were we were also that family, though, that want my dad would have had the biggest banger ever at the synagogue. It would have been 500 people packed to the rafters. And instead, it was a grainy video at you know graveside with about 30, you know, immediate family spaced out. And, um, you know, but I I think that the you know, when I look at where we are now, what I struggle with the most is that. It's still here. Like it's it's not over. And the, the 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 I can't even begin to wrap my arms around the channel change and how abruptly it happened and how it we can't seem to hold two thoughts at one time. And I know there's a war going on in Europe, and like that is critically important for many, many, many reasons. But my God, we are entering into another wave of COVID. It is a it has arrived right? And I, you, you, I, I think that one of the things I come back to a lot, and I think I maybe mentioned this at the beginning, is that for those who haven't lost somebody, the experience of seeing yourself in the pain of others who have lost someone is probably the single way out of this pandemic, right? Like, without that, if we can't have people seeing their stake, in the experiences and the lives and the dreams and the hopes of people that they do not know, we will never get out of this, right? The only way out is to see each other and to see that we have a responsibility to each other. And I, you know, this is why when we get back to this idea of like memorials, like, first of all, I don't know how you memorial, like, how do you, how do you do a memorial when it's still unfolding? I, that's an open question to me. Um, But also how do you get people you know, to really stop and just take that. You know, I, I wish every single person in the country could just spend 15 minutes with Kristen and hear her story. The whole, like, I wish every member of Congress and every governor and mayor as a starting point could sit with Kristen for 15, 30 minutes and get her story. It would functionally change our entire public policy. I really believe because it has been too convenient for people to look the other way. It's been too convenient for people to change the channel and tune it out. And if, you know, I I don't know how to do that at scale. And I think that that's uh, without it. I I don't know how we, you know, break through this. So Kristen, you're going to have to save us. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) think.
1: Well, you know, used to it. Um, But actually (laughs) on this point, I've been thinking a lot, even super recently in the last couple of weeks, about how out of all the things that we have been active on, on with with Mark by COVID, how our memorial work is by far the most radical because it's, it, it is witnessing, it is bearing witness to our authentic truth, which we have the moral authority. Yes. Uh, we cannot, th- that cannot be taken from us. Mm-hmm. And I have, you know, really been encouraging, you know, all of the folks in my network to continue to share their stories because it automatically produces the outcome of that is empathy. Like, unless you're like a robot, when you sit with me and hear what I went through or sit with Lucy or sit with Rima or sit with, you know, Pamela and hear what they went through in that acute moment of loss, let alone before or after it, 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 change, it, it is the work that changes hearts and minds and brings, you know, it, it really brings this into deep focus. And it's part of the reason why we've been working to, um, you know, pass a COVID Memorial Day to recognize the first Monday in March as, um, as this time where we have in time and space to bear witness to this, put a line in the sand and say, no, this was actually a big deal. We lost a million people plus. Um, But that's also, you know, why I have really kind of come into this realization that I am an instrument of truth and inherently by living my truth, I am political and Mm -hmm. that sort of storytelling in a yeah. way of recognizing losses and helping more people share their stories is by far, I think, one of the most radical things I can ever do with my life.
0: I mean, I just want to pause there for a second and, and just make sure, I think you both know this, but um, you're doing it. I mean, this is, this is the memorial. Yeah. This conversation, what you, what you said, Kristen, the, the seizing the moral authority of telling one's story Stories have been devalued in our society. It was just weird considering how much popular culture we consume, how story addicted we are, but real, like real stories of loss and suffering, you know, and then I often think of people consume so much story on Netflix, and then you try to get them to sit down for five minutes and, and talk about somebody who died of COVID. It's like, nah, we're past that. There's a disconnect there and it, um, you're reconnecting it. You're doing it. And, And I mean, 7,000 stories, Alex, yep. the, the thousands of hours of meetings, Kristen, and the activism and calling for the Memorial Day. Um, we're still very much in this. We're nowhere near beyond this. We're in the middle of this. So, I mean, I just I just want to observe from my vantage point that somebody who thinks in both views of you as a friend and really m- motivated by your work, is that um, you've made enormous contributions up right up to now, but it's pretty early still. I mean, I think I've shared with both of you, and I've talked with about um, Sally Reganhart on this program a lot. Who's a, a mom of a firefighter who died in September 11? It's tw- 20 years on; and she's still active. It's the long game. Mm-hmm. How comfortable are you with that?
1: I was um, mentioning a moment ago that part of the reason why I'm in my car and it's dark is that I'm heading back from having a meeting with uh, one of my professors at Berkeley, and um, he w- wanted me to come to class to meet Marshall Gantz, who is a uh, you know, community organizer from the Harvard Kim- Kennedy School um, that I've been a fangirl of for like most of my life. And I got to connect with Marshall, and um, you know I was telling him a little bit about my pre-story before COVID and part of uh, this journey when I was home going through my dad's things with my mom, I ran across my um, application ma- material for undergrad and I'm old enough to like have done things on a typewriter. Um, and so I had like a typewritten you know analog copy of my application and my personal essay was all about being a good ancestor what my purpose and calling in life when I was 18 was to be a good ancestor. And this was like, you know, late nineties, well before that sort of, you know, talk was quite above the fold. And I, in sharing with him about my kind of personal narrative was I feel like I finally found the avenue in which I can pay that forward. My grandfather was a farm worker. He was active in the farm workers movement. I feel so connected to like that sort of work and narrative. But I also can see forward how this work of of preserving the legacies of a million people, like I can't imagine doing anything else that has a higher calling and a higher purpose towards paying it forward and sort of lining up towards you know, being a good ancestor. So it's a long way of saying like, I myself have always considered myself an organizer and an activist, and I care about the climate crisis. And I've worked in that for a really long time. I've worked with environmental justice groups. I, you know, I first thought about this as public health, but now I'm actually thinking about this on a much higher level about the legacy that was given to me that I am providing for others. And it's a, it's, it's an honor to have the little platform that I do have to not only remember my dad, but hopefully remember them all because their lives mattered.
2: Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I get the question a lot. It's you, it sort of ranges in tone that it's like, sometimes it's like, why the hell are you still doing this? Like, you're crazy. Like, why are you, why are you doing this for two years? Uh, I get the question a lot. Like, boy, that must be really depressing and really, uh, you know, make you miserable. And I'm worried about your mental health and all this stuff. And, you know, my, uh, first of all, I just want to, I love, I'm going to start using that line all the time about, I mean, that about, you know, your ancestors. I love that. First of all. And by the way, Marshall Gantz is his theory on grassroots organizing was what got me into politics in 2006. On the first (laughs) campaign, we had like the Marshall Gantz playbook. So I just want to make sure I say that before I forget. So I get this question a lot about when is it going to end? When are you going to stop? Why are you still doing this? And first of all, I I don't, I've never seen faces of COVID as a burden. I've always seen it as a privilege that people are willing to entrust some guy who they've never met with the stories of their loved ones. Like they are like the most, when I, I, so I have the submission form that people use and it has now thousands of submissions. And each morning I wake up and I check to see the new ones. I had to delist the link because a bunch of neo-Nazis started sending me a bunch of anti-Semitic stuff. And so now it's uh, by request only. I will provide the link once I've vetted that you're not a neo-Nazi. And um, the, that aside, sorry, um, you know, I, I, I see a really heavy responsibility when people are willing to be vulnerable enough I mean, think about this, that it's not even that they're inviting you to their loved one's funeral and how vulnerable it would be to invite a stranger to your loved one's funeral. But imagine taking your family, your loved one, putting them into 240 characters and then blasting them off into the most historically toxic platform in all of humanity, which would be, you know, Twitter, right? Like what in the world and so i feel a responsibility to get this right and to continue i mean i see 7000 as horribly under representing the magnitude of what we've just gone through and what we're still going through and the responsibility um you know to keep it going i i guess uh i don't know i i think the hardest part for me is how do you keep doing that when the push to move on is so aggressive that at some point, like, do you need to do something else to pull people back? I, I that's the part that I've been starting to experiment with threads and like different sorts of things, because I'm concerned that the eventually people are just going to completely change the channel. And I think that's, um, you know, the part that I'm still really struggling with. And now as we enter year three, so we'll see.
0: Well, it wouldn't hurt if there was a, a politician out there in the United States who actually, like you said at the top, like made this a real, a real issue and fought for it. It wouldn't hurt if a great, um, I'm broadcasting this out because I want people to listen to this. It wouldn't hurt if there were some aspiring filmmakers out there who wanted to make a film about Kristen or a film about Alex or a film about the communities that you've made. Um, there's the doing of the work. And then there's the, the process of a- amplifying that that work. I, I agree. Policymakers have, they don't. I don't know why they don't want to tell this story because they think it's, it's bad news. No, their voters don't want to hear it anymore, even though their voters are at peril of life and death every single day. And every one voter has been touched by COVID, but, um, but we need the culture and we need the politics to kick in now. You know, I mean, it's my own observation talking to you both. I mean, there's exhaustion there and you've earned it. I mean, it's an earned, it's, it's a, it's a badge, but um, you need help too. And I hope Absolutely. people really pitch in. I
1: mean, like, you know, Alex, you know, seven thousand story is like that's a lot of work. But, you know, as he said, like, how is Alex supposed to do a million? And, you know, there's Madeline, the fourteen year old girl who's like sewing quilt panels and she's done hundreds, right. but like you know we're putting this burden on 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 individuals just as we put the burden on the pandemic on exactly. individuals exactly. and it just doesn't work and as a this result is so, such it, an it's important just this is uneven sort of like access to if you're on twitter like you find alex but like if you're not on twitter which many people aren't how right. wh- what is your avenue like this is not comfort this is so wildly inadequate and to your point scott there needs to be a call to action to the you know The powers that be both in politics, but also the makers of culture of of telling and sharing these stories and the struggle of preserving this space over the last couple of years and saying this is worth it because what we've lost are is, is it's like invaluable. Like the least we can do is take care of their story
0: we probably need to wrap up. Um, I would just say, you know, to Alex, I've gotten the same question and and Kristen, I'm sure you get it too. Like when, when will you stop doing COVID calls or when will you kind of move on to the next thing? And then like, um, I think, I think if Kristen and Alex can keep doing what they're doing, I think those of us in the academic community can show up a couple hours a day and try to work and document that. It's not that huge of an ask. So this sort of like getting back to normal as pervasive across all domains of life, I think. It's a a toxic normalcy, this urge to get back to something um, that was unjust and incorrect and incomplete and amnesiac before. So this is a moment to break through. I'm like, yes, this is the, you were all waiting for the big disaster that was gonna shape the world and now we're living in it. And you wanna turn the channel? No way. can't let them.
1: True. I mean, absolutely. Like I, I live in the San Francisco Bay area. I'm sure I've said this to both of you, like the thing that you hear all the time is like, oh, big disruptor opportunity growth. Like this is basically that. And if we really want to address the systems of oppression inequities, like this is our moment and turning the channel isn't an option. So how long do we do this for? I mean, I, I mentioned this to a reporter the other day. It's like, you know, the biggest lesson that I've learned is that I'm not okay, but yet I'm comfortable being not okay. Whereas before I was like trying really hard to be okay when I didn't feel great about playing second fiddle all the time to like a more privileged, whiter, more male person than myself. And now I'm, you know, I'm just going to live my truth. And that's what I'm going to continue doing for the rest of my life. Hopefully we're able to change the world, at least by doing that some more.
0: I want to just remind folks that uh, you've been listening to COVID calls and this is a special uh, episode of COVID calls a part of the restoring memory episodes as we're leading up to the launch of the COVID calls digital archive, which I, which launches tomorrow and you can find all of the COVID calls in one place, including audio, video, transcript, artwork, essays, and community. So look forward to talking more um, with everyone about that and um, just taking a moment here to thank Alex and Kristen again. Um, you know, your time is is. Uh, we know what you spend your time doing, so to take an hour out of it and and have this conversation means a lot, and uh, I think you both know that there's a lot of people out there who really rely on you, and uh, it's a big big responsibility, but
2: you're up to it. <laughs> Thank you, Scott, for your fortitude to keep doing this. Uh, I, I this is not an easy thing to produce day after day after day as well. So you're definitely a part of that kind of group of us who probably maybe didn't expect to find ourselves in this position who are trying to do something meaningful in the midst of a lot of really really bad stuff so thanks for what you do as well
1: i could not yeah have said it better myself scott you're definitely on my zombie a- apocalypse team like scott, <laughs> like and Alex obviously oh I want too. a badge
0: for that I, like- wanna, I want I want to all right. Well, this is not, this is just, a, we'll have to continue these conversations as Every we episode about The zombie
2: apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, thanks to you both. And uh, everybody just uh, rejoin me in a few minutes. We'll have one more episode of COVID calls coming up. Um, and then a short break after that of a few hours and then rejoining, I'll be talking to Shannon Mattern, Jacqueline Bernamont, and Heather Schulte about how to visualize the pandemic and the artwork of the pandemic that'll be starting in just a few minutes on COVID calls. And you can find that. By following at US of Disaster or the COVID Calls YouTube channel. Kristen and Alex will talk to you again soon, I hope. Stay healthy. And thanks everybody for joining me on COVID Calls.